If you're ready for freedom from the grind, then passive income from real estate investing is the best way to get you there. If you don't know where to start or what to do next, then the Rent Roll Radio Show is the best place to get you there. Join us while we discuss the best practices, strategies, and mindset you'll need and give you actionable content to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back. This is your host, Sterling Chapman. I have a really cool guest that I'm excited to have back. We've been friends for a few years now, catch up with each other at all the conferences. Uh, Travis Watts is back on the show for another go. Travis, thanks for joining us. Sterling, man, thrilled to be here. Great to see you at uh, Best Ever Conference a month ago. Absolutely. Travis, uh, a lot has changed in the world of real estate investing since the last time yes. uh, we got together on this show. So I, I wanted to um, I want to go over all those changes. But for our listeners that are maybe new listeners or, or, or aren't familiar with you and your brand and and everything, um, I wanted to just give you a little introduction. Uh, Travis is a full time passive investor. And then um, he is actually the director of investor education for Ashcroft Capital um, on the side. So really cool dynamic there that I always appreciate about Travis is he's a he's a full-time investor first and then the work is is on the side. But Travis, can, for our listeners that aren't familiar with you and didn't catch the last show, can you give us a brief rundown of your history, where you came from, how you got to where you are and what you're doing today? Sure, man. Happy to. Yeah, I'll give you kind of the brief uh, lowdown here. So uh, to your point of being first and foremost an investor and then having active components to your lifestyle, that didn't come till much later in my journey. So I started like most people with a W-2 job. I worked a ton of hours. I was burning myself out, kind of climbing the ladder as a lot of us do in our culture and investing in single family homes. I did fix and flips, I did vacation rentals, I had roommates for many years. I mean, I was doing anything to make a buck, right? So right. I I built up the equity. That was my first focus is pretty much exclusively on equity. I had to build a nest egg because I wasn't handed anything through childhood. No trust, no inheritance, just you know, <laughs> make yourself what you want to be become. Yeah. And so I did that for, I don't know, six and a half, seven years, being very frugal, very diligent with money, and then trying to get into the real estate game. And then it just kind of got to this point where I started thinking, what's next? What's the big picture here, right? I'm not just, you know, a money hungry person. What am I trying to really accomplish? And that's where I began thinking about becoming a passive investor, letting other people run the business plan and be active doing their highest and best. And I could just invest with them in their deals and then collect passive income. And aside from the real estate stuff, that would be a, a real estate syndication for anybody listening or a private placement. I invest in basically anything with a cash flow or passive income focus from car washes to ATM machines to note lending to publicly traded REITs to covered call ETFs. I mean, you name it. I'm all over the space uh, as a passive okay. investor. And it, it, the reason is, Sterling, that to me, it was all about building up enough passive income to be able to choose what you really want to focus on actively. Because I think, especially for those of us that are younger, you don't just really want to retire in the traditional sense, you know, sit on the couch, sure. play around a golf every day, do nothing. You still want to contribute. You still want to do things. And so the beauty of it is the passive income 
can give you a backstop, something to rely on, a supplemental source of income. For me, a primary source of income for a lot of people, just a secondary source to where you could move to part-time work instead of full-time, or you could try a new career and make a pivot, or you could take a year off and you could go travel and do some things while you're uh, younger and not put them off till your 60s or 70s, at which point maybe you don't have the physical ability to to go travel the world or whatever it is you're after. So yeah, um, you can make you can make decisions on what you want to be doing versus making the decisions for the money. That was the first paradigm shift that I saw when yeah. I started, you know, because same story, started W2, working all these hours. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. And then started in the, in the real estate. And, and you know, it, it, there's typically, you know, a few steps before you can just kind of quit your job altogether. But the, the sure. first the first shift I noticed was the uh, I didn't have to, like, choose my role based off of the compensation anymore. You know, yes. whereas a, a pre-real estate Sterling would have taken that promotion, whether he really wanted the job or not, just because it was more money. And, yeah. and and a lot of times I would get promoted into bigger headaches, right? And bigger headaches and I'd move up and make more money and get bigger headaches. And yeah. so, and then once, once the real estate income started coming in, I'll, uh, it, it just, it switched the way I viewed work. And it was just like, well, I think actually like, I'll just stay in this job that I enjoy a little more rather than go into that job where I might make a little bit more money. A hundred percent. And for those of who follow uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V, I mean, he talks about this all the time. He'd rather make 60,000 per year and be extremely happy in his work than make 200K a year and be miserable. And that's the case with a lot of people working up the corporate ladder. It was certainly my situation as well. And it's the classic golden handcuffs. They give you more pay and more pay and more pay to eventually, you know, you really can't make a pivot if you don't have any supplemental income or else you have to take a big step down in a lot of cases in compensation. And that's really hard for people to do, especially if you've been elevating your lifestyle based on your current pay, right? It might be yeah. now losing a house or downsizing or things that, that are uncomfortable that you don't want to do. So at the end of the day, it's a work optional lifestyle is how I look at it. Awesome. Now, remind me, how did you... I feel like we skipped a few steps and, and I'm, I'm sure you told me the story last go round. but you know, uh, a lot of folks are probably that listen to your story probably thinking, well, well, Travis, there's, there's a lot between like, Oh, I think I'm going to invest in real estate. I'm going to go do some single family houses to all of a sudden. Now I'm a full-time passive investor that doesn't actually have to work. And so, yeah. so what is, I mean, what did what's, what, what part of the story did you skip there? <laughs> where did you get to where because yeah. because all my passive investors all my passive investors that a lot of them a lot of my passive investors aren't as sophisticated right they're not like career sure. passive investors they're they have other career you know it's a lawyer or a doctor and i introduced them to the concept of apartment syndications and through passive investing but yeah. um they're always like oh man I, I'd, I'd love to be an active investor like you and i was like well, I'd love to be a passive investor like you. I'm an active investor because I had no choice. I didn't have the money going into it. Yeah. It's just like, I'll put 100K in your syndication and 100K in your syndication. And 100, you know what I mean? I just didn't have it. So how did yeah. you build the wealth to, to be able to be a passive investor? 
Yeah, I want to share a couple of things with your listeners. First of all, it is kind of that teeter-totter of, of time versus money, right? So when a lot of us are younger, myself included, had a lot of time to dedicate to things, didn't have a lot of money. And so as I started building up the wealth, then I could use the wealth to free up my time. That's kind of how the equilibrium works. So there's really four steps to kind of break it down for your listeners. How did I actually do this? So the first is... Uh, I call these the the four pillars to financial independence. And they're just things I wrote out for myself that I've followed ever since and still follow today. Number one is earn as much as you can earn using your highest and best earning potential. So that used to be for me, working oil and gas, W-2, flipping homes on the side. That was my side hustle. And that pretty much maxed me out right there. So that's as much as I could make. It was a six-figure income. And number two is live on as little of that income as possible for a period of time. I don't advocate you know, extreme frugality for life or always live severely below your means, but for a period of time until you can get yourself to your goal. Number three is invest in something. Don't just save your money. You'll get eaten up by inflation if you do that. So for me, it was real estate and specifically, it, you know, by 2015 and onward has been passive income real estate for the most part. And number four is avoid bad debt. And the way I define bad debt is if if you're paying an interest rate that's higher than what you could otherwise achieve by conservatively investing, it's bad debt. So if you have credit card debt at 20% and you think, well, I probably couldn't go out there and get 20% cash flow on a real estate deal, then pay off the 20% debt. It's bad debt. But if you've got a car loan at 3% or student loan debt that's really low, and you could otherwise go invest and make 8 or 9% cash flow, then it might be better to consider investing instead of trying to pay off that debt. Okay, so those were the four steps that I followed. And I want to explain it a little broader in terms of kind of the hierarchy of the income levels of, of people in general. So the first is what I call self-sufficiency. And this is where you can basically, you know, pay for your lifestyle solely based on an active income. These are people that are mostly just paycheck to paycheck, but at least you can support yourself independently. The next step is called stability. And it's where, you know, you still have an active income primarily, but you have a little cash cushion, maybe an emergency fund. You got a little bit of money in the bank, a little more peace of mind. It's kind of your Dave Ramsey style of, of, of person. And then above that gets into flexibility. And this is usually where people start investing and ideally for passive income where it's what we talked about. Now you have flexibility over your lifestyle a little more. You could switch to part-time work. You could pivot careers. You could maybe take a year off of work, things like that. And the next step above that is what I try to advocate all the time through my podcasts and outlets, and that's financial independence. And that's where you can solely live off the cash flow or passive income from your investments. You do not need to have an active job if you choose not to have an active job. And the level above that is financial abundance. And this is what you see all the time in the mass media with the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Bill Gates and the Elon Musk. These are billionaires. These are people who they, they can't spend all the money they have, right? So it usually becomes a right. means of charity and giving back to other people yeah. and philanthropy, exactly. So that's kind of the highest tier of the wealth spectrum. So you kind of got to figure out where you fit in that spectrum, what your goals are, what you're trying to lead up to. And um, yeah, keep in mind a, a few of those key points that might be helpful for a few of your listeners.
Absolutely. So I want to uh, pivot real quick uh, because we have had a crazy year um, and, and I want <laughs> yeah. your opinion on on a, a variety of topics about it. So what are you seeing in the market? What are you changing um, based off of what you're seeing in the market? What's your predictions? What's been your experience? Yeah. So the last time I was on your show was, I, I think it was 2021, maybe it was 2020. So we'll just start with 2020 real quick. And I'll give you kind of a recap of what's different, what's changed and what's the same. So I've been investing as a limited partner, mostly in value add multifamily syndications and private placements. And 2020 was scary with the onset of the pandemic. Things are closing down. We didn't know that stimulus was coming. You know, we just didn't know what we didn't know. So not a lot of deal transaction and Q1, Q2 of that year until we figured out that the government is is going to bail everybody out and that, you know, things are back to normal, so to speak, for, for the time being. 2021 was that year of euphoria. The stock market is just ramping up with 30 something percent. Everyone's buying real estate. Everyone's buying everything, right? This is where inflation starts to build up. And this is where I really started getting skeptical because the deals I'm in traditionally predict, let's say, a three to four percent rent bump year over year. And we're seeing double-digit rent growth across the nation, right? We're we're expediting these business plans by three, four years in some cases. And I thought, well, first of all, that's not sustainable. You can't have a 15% rent bump every single year for five years in a row. It just doesn't work that way. So I started getting skeptical about what's next, right? And so what was next is the Fed steps in in 2022 and starts raising interest rates, which is not good for real estate, right? Because it hurts your valuations because the primary driver of multifamily is the net operating income. And so as the next purchaser comes to buy your property and they've got a 7% mortgage instead of a 3% mortgage, their net operating income is lower. Thus, they, they can't pay as much for the property, right? So 2022 was a rocky road. Every time uh, I was investing in a deal, seemed like the next month rates were going up and that was hurting the valuation. So I had a really hard time mentally getting through 2022. And that brings us to 2023, where we haven't quite seen the outpour of this impending recession or whatever that's going to look like or become. We're starting to see small signs of it. But traditionally speaking, the stock markets usually crash ahead or in parallel with the announcement of a recession. So hopefully we have a lot of that kind of turmoil behind us. But in terms of multifamily, Sterling, I'm more bullish this year than I've been in the last two years. I'm not nearly as skeptical as 21. It's not going to be, in my opinion, such a rocky road like 2022 with these aggressive rate hikes. The Fed is now nearing the top of its rate hike cycle. Nobody knows exactly what that's going to become when it's all said and done. But the point is, they've already raised the Fed funds rate to, what, nearly 5%. We know they can't go to 10%. So we're not going to have a repeat of last year, right? You'd break the whole world economy if you did that. So maybe they incrementally raise from here a bit more. We're recording this in Q1 of this year. Maybe they pause and they wait and see. And maybe they taper down rates towards the end of the year or moving into 2024. So as I look at these multifamily value-add deals, I'm working with operators that are prepared and underwriting for the Fed to continue raising rates, even if they don't end up doing that. And if the right. Fed 
you know, stagnates, we should be able to execute the same way we have in years past when interest rates were moving from three to four percent up and down. And if the Fed decides to taper rates, that's going to be everybody's best case scenario where we could potentially refinance early, sell these deals early and effectively put millions of dollars back into these properties just solely based off of interest rates. So uh, that's what I'm looking forward to. If you're a long term investor, this is the opportunity to buy the dip. Uh, the last two deals I've done were buying properties about 20 percent uh, discounts relative to a year prior. And that's the classic example of, of buy the dip. So I'm a dollar cost average kind of guy, right? I'm always, I, I'm aware I'm going to overpay sometimes. And sometimes I'm going to get a discount, but over the long haul, I'm going to pay an average price for, for the real estate. So that's my that's, little spiel on it. <laughs> that's funny. I was talking to an investor about an hour ago and, uh, and he was like, Hey, you know, you can let me know if something changes in the market and I should stop investing. Right. He's a he's a real nervous, a real nervous investor. The, the whole apartment syndication concept is new to him. High earner, it's just just new to him. And so yeah. he counseled me and my experience. He, he, if you see anything market crazy, tell me to stop because I'll, I'll stop. And I'm like, I'm like dollar cost average. Like, I mean, if if I hadn't told you to stop in the last two years, I don't think I'm gonna tell you to stop in the next two years. You know, yeah. um, just 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 consistently. Now, as a passive investor. What do you look for in in your deals? And I and I'm sure you're diversified all over the place. But what is your process for evaluating yeah. the deal, the the jockey, the whole deal? Yeah, what I teach people on is to start first and foremost with yourself. Start with what are your goals and objectives? What is it that you're trying to accomplish, and why? And and everyone talks about the why, and sometimes that gets cheesy. Excuse me, in conversation, but it's really important to not just set a number goal for yourself. Because I ask people about their goals all the time. What I always hear is either $10,000 a month passive income, you know, $5 million net worth by age, blah, blah, blah. Well, tie it to something more uh, emotional, okay? I want to put my kids through college. It's going to cost about this much money. Therefore, I'm going to invest for equity and passive income, and that's going to effectively pay for their college, blah, blah, blah. Like, get very, very detailed and put some emotion into it. I want to retire my wife so she can spend more time with the kids, et cetera. Um, so knowing whether you're cash flow focused or equity focused or a combination of the two is really important, right? Because everyone's got different goals and objectives. Number two is to find operators, if you're going to do syndications, that are doing that type of business plan that suits your goals. So for me, what attracted me to Joe Fairless and Ashcroft years ago is they have a combination of tax benefits I was looking for, monthly distributions I was looking for, uh, cash flow and equity upside. And that's pretty much the bread and butter of what I look for in an investment, ideally. I don't only do that style of deal, but I would say 70% of the time, it's going to be that type of deal. So you're looking for track record experience, reputation of these particular operators. And the only thing I've found in my experience to you know, a lot of people ask, you know, what if I lose everything or what if what if I invest in a in a scam or something? There's it's really hard to identify that kind of stuff. First of all, it's not very common yeah. in terms of scams and things like that, but it does and can happen. So diversification 
has been my answer. And I was just watching, uh, I think it was on Netflix, they put out a new uh, Bernie Madoff documentary, a little three-part series. And I know the story, I've seen all the documentaries and movies, but it's fascinating to me. And I always think, if someone like that existed today, right, there's these, you know, high double digit returns year over year, whether you're in a recession or not, I truly would only put like 50,000 with an operator like that, you know, and the people that really got demolished by Bernie Madoff went all in. They took, you know, their billion dollars and they just went all in. And so that's something to think about. And it's why over the last two years, I've been doing a lot of diversifying, as I mentioned, through car washes, self-storage, mobile home parks. I've really spaced it out. I'm still mostly in multifamily uh, because of the essentialness of it, if that's a word. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it's just what I know and understand best. And it has really close ties and roots to the single family stuff that I did back in the day. But um, you know, it's so so it's basically the operator, the market, and the deal. And I'd say 50% of importance to me is on the operator. You mentioned you bet on the jockey. I do. And that's sure. very important. Uh, their ability to execute a business plan. Have they done it before? How many times? What were the results? You got to ask these questions. And number two is what market are you in? Is it growing, expanding? Is it diversified among employment? How are the landlord-tenant laws? There's a lot of these little subcategories to familiarize yourself with, which you can do through books, podcasts, or mentorships, masterminds, all kinds of stuff. And then there's the deal itself. And too many people, including myself back when, would just look at the deal. How good is the deal? What are the returns of the deal? The deal, the deal, the deal. But I failed to realize that if this operator can't actually do this business plan, who cares about the deal? That's <laughs> the last thing I look at. <laughs> that, the, deals, the deal is the last thing I look at. Me too. Me too. And that was uh, that was lessons learned over the years. So yeah. So that's kind of how I go through the, the vetting process from a macro level. I got two questions and I uh, you can answer them one at a time, but I'm going to ask them together so I won't forget uh, the second one. The first one is I want to I want to talk more about your flipping your single family and yeah. how that went and 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 how that transition out of that went and then the second mm-hmm. one is um, I want to talk about how many full cycle deals you've done as a passive investor and how those performed compared to underwriting. So let's let's start with the the flip one first. Um, you yeah. make a lot of money flipping houses. I've made a lot of money flipping houses. And I've, I've talked to a lot of people like yourself who used to make a lot of money flipping houses. And then they found multifamily and they go, nope, no more ever flipping houses again, all in on multifamily. And my question around yeah. that is, how do you do that transition? Because the, the, for me, the, all the multifamily deals, they're, they'll, they'll be great in five years, but I'm not living off of it today. Whereas the the flipping houses is keeping the lights on. So how do you go from just, you make a lot of money flipping houses. How do you turn that off to start a process that you got a five-year payout on? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thought process. It's a great question, by the way. No one really asked me about this specifically, but my returns early on, no matter what I was doing in single family, were in the ballpark of about 20 to 35% annualized. Now, that was a combination of vacation rentals and flips and buy and holds and things like that. Now, mind you, I had a very small bit of capital I was working with, relatively speaking. And so 
what happened over the years is I started getting more and more conservative in my investments, which meant that my yield went down. But dollar for dollar, I make far more today than I ever did back then, right? So I learned this from one of my mentors, and I'll share this quick story with you. He's in Boulder, Colorado, and he says, uh, this guy's probably got 80 to 100 million net worth that he's that's investable, right, out there in the market. So I said, what's the primary thing that you have focused on or one of them? And he said, it's um, insured municipal bonds. <laughs> and I just had to laugh because I thought, are you kidding me? Like 3% yield a year or something like that. That's what you're getting on, you know, $40 million. And he said, yeah, but think of it this way. It's a tax-free income that I take little to no risk on. And I make whatever, a million dollars a year off of it. So even if the rest of my portfolio goes to crap, I still live a good life. And I thought, hmm, that actually makes a lot of sense. So I've been kind of segueing into these more conservative deals, not quite to that extreme, but you know, where my cash flow yields today are maybe like six, seven, eight percent, and certainly not 25 to 35. But again, I have a much bigger pool of capital. Uh, that I'm working with. So let me get back to your question. I made a lot of money in flips. I never lost money on a flip, but I came very, very close. And that was kind of at the turning point where I started thinking about the long term of doing flips. And what had happened on that deal is the market saved me. <laughs> what I would do when I would flip most often is I, I wouldn't actually flip in the traditional sense, like buy, rehab, sell within three months. I, I never did that. I would buy, rehab, and rent and hold at least one year for long-term capital gains, and then I would sell. So I would do these short-term leases with traveling nurses or, you know, a six-month lease isn't that common, you know, in the industry. So I was the person who was making that available to others. And it was just a tax play. But anyway... This particular deal, I got a bad tenant in there. I had just put a bunch of money into the rehab. They pretty much demolished everything. A brand new carpet, floors, paint. They they brought a cat in there, a dog in there. It peed all over the place. It just demolished this house well above their, their damage deposit. So then I had to do a second rehab six months later and do a lot of that stuff over. And that's why I almost lost money on the deal. But I came close to a break even. And so I started thinking about one, my uncle, who was what I would consider a professional developer and fix and flipper before the Great Recession. And I was watching him as a as a kid growing up thinking, oh, my God, I want to be this guy because he's going from these $200,000 homes to these $400,000 homes to these million dollar luxury homes. And just he's pooling over his money deal over deal over deal until 2008. And he almost lost all. everything. Yep. He was in one of the biggest, most luxury homes he had ever done in Denver, Colorado, and he almost lost everything. And then that made me realize that's really market dependent. Okay. If I'm going to be a full-time real estate guy, this strategy isn't going to work in all markets. It's going to work well when I was doing it in 2012 and 13 and 14 and 15. Those were prime years in the market I was in for doing flips. But 2022? I don't think so. You know, 2023, pretty difficult. If we went into more raise of a recession, your, it'd be even harder. Raise your hand if you got kicked in the teeth pretty bad in 2022 flipping houses. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
Yeah. So, you know, it's a good side hustle. It's an opportunistic play in the same way that I traditionally will buy publicly traded REITs and stocks when the market has a nasty correction. I bought in 2020 with the onset of the pandemic. I bought some in 2022. And if the market turns even deeper, I'll buy more. And I don't try to time the market. All I'm saying is I'll I'll pop open, you know, CNBC one day and say, oh wow, you know, the SP is 40% down. I'll start to buy. Uh, it's opportunistic, yeah. right? But it's not something that I do when when the market's hitting all-time highs, you know, as the old saying goes, you know, the bull walks up the stairs and the bear jumps out the window. You have a limited amount of time when the bear jumps out the window to get in, or else you missed out. And now it's going to be a long bull run, potentially for, you know, a decade longer. So anyway, that was a lot. That was a mouthful. But that's kind of what segued me out of flips is knowing it wasn't sustainable and knowing I had more capital to work with and I could do more conservative investments. I didn't have to take as much risk. and, 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 you know, the other two things that you didn't mention, but I'll mention them, is it's, sure. it's A, it's stressful, and B, it's a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, yeah, man. Yeah, you can't do two. I've got a buddy who's a realtor, a broker, a wholesaler, and a flipper. That dude doesn't even have a family anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's never home. He's never, he can't be in the moment. He's not focused. He's just stressed 24 seven. So I didn't want that kind of lifestyle. I came from that in oil and gas. And that was what I was trying to get away from. So no, that's an excellent point. So, so that ties me back to my second question, which was um, full cycle deals. Um, oh yeah, sorry. Side. Hmm. So, what is that? What have you, um, what have you experienced with full cycles deals as it relates to how underwriting was? Because a lot of myself included, and, and anybody else who's hopped into this business in the last three, four years, we don't have a lot of full cycle deals. Like we, we've got all we've really got to show is our underwriting, our, yeah. our pro formas. So. Yeah. For those of you who've been around a little bit longer and seen a good number of full cycle deals, how how have they performed compared to underwriting? And I'm I'm asking that maybe maybe going back a little further back, right? Because anything that sold in the first half of 2022, you probably quadrupled your money. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Outside of that, you know, how's that looked? Yeah, well, I'll incorporate that in my answer too to give you the extreme. So. When I transitioned from single family to multifamily, this was 2015 to 2016, okay? So keeping in mind what the market's done since then. I've tried to work with groups that are very conservative in their underwriting and try to underpromise and overdeliver. Of course, everyone says they do and everyone wants to work with groups like that. So how has that panned out? Well, it gets back to the operator of the market, the deal, those three risk metrics. So the worst deal I invested in in the multifamily space was with an operator that basically got roughly 20% into the business plan of renovations and gave up. They realized they didn't know what they were doing. They couldn't complete the job. They had hired all the wrong people. They'd gotten scammed left and right. And they just said, look, the deal has equity in it. We're going to sell it. And we're just going to give you whatever that amounts to, basically. So, um, you know, what they underwrote was about a 20% IRR or double your money in five years. We were in the deal for two years and we got maybe a nine to 10% IRR return. So, about half of what we expected 
Because again, half of the emphasis to me anyway, is on the operator who basically failed that business plan. So I can't complain about it. It was still a, a solid return, all things considered, but it wasn't at all what I had anticipated or hoped for. So that was that was the bad deal. And I'm sorry, how, were you going to say how, something? Yeah, I'm curious how this person convinced you to invest in their deal. Yeah, well, I, I I can only blame myself for the lack of due diligence. It was a introduction through a friend of a friend who had done a deal with these people in the past. What I didn't realize is the deal he had done was their first deal, and I was doing their second deal, and they had never taken on a project of this size. The first deal they did, from my understanding, was like a hundred and something unit, and this was like four hundred and fifty units in a portfolio. So they just went way big, real fast, and just thought, if we can do it small, we can do it big, and let's just go and see what happens. And there were some students involved, I didn't realize that either, that were kind of doing some of the underwriting, and they were kind of getting a rubber stamp by somebody. But anyway, I won't name names, but uh, yeah, never invested with them again. Um, they had a lot of issues from <laughs> tax reporting to communication to everything else, as you might imagine. So that's how that one went. Um, the majority of my deals have been at or slightly above the expectations. And from 2015 through current, that's been underwriting a deal at maybe a 15 to 18% IRR and either achieving that or slightly outperforming that, maybe getting something like a 20% IRR. And to your point of 2021 and 22, I had about eight deals sell in Q4 of 21 and Q1 of 22. And it was because of what we experienced with low interest rates and crazy euphoria in the market, et cetera. So those deals were the best performing on average. And there's been a few that have lagged behind, but not significantly. I had a couple that went full cycle at about a 14% IRR. And for anyone listening that may not be familiar, internal rate of return is IRR. And I'm, I'm combining the cash flow that I received and the equity upon the sale at the end. And I'm merging those together and I'm looking at it on an annualized basis for how many years I was in the deal. So be like a 14% annualized return. I want to elaborate on that. On that, I was going to ask the question before you started, but since you started, yeah. we can dive into it. Uh, when you have these conversations with your investors, how do you define and explain the difference between an internal rate of return and an average annual rate of return? Because <laughs> a lot of my, a lot of my investors, a lot of my non—I say non-sophisticated—they're sophisticated, just not around finance. So when I say like internal rate of return, you know, like they they just most people, most people not in finance think in yeah. average annual rate of return. They think, yeah, you know, du double your money over five years is a 20% average annual rate of return. And I and I explain yeah. like, hey, that that's kind of what you can expect with these projects. And then I send them the pro forma and the numbers of 15. And they're like, well, wait a minute. It says 15. Yeah. I thought I was getting 20%. And, yeah. and then that kind of opens it up to, all right, well, we discount future cash flows and blah, blah, blah. So how do you handle this conversation? Yeah. So for someone that has questions to to that tune, what is a cash on cash? What's a preferred return? What's an IRR? That Those kinds of conversations. I just simply break down the three and, and it can be confusing over the phone. So I always back this up with visuals that I send over email afterwards. And I also created a whole video series on industry terminology 
on Ashcroft Capital's YouTube channel. So I can point people and hyperlink the videos to help them out. So basically the the preferred return that you see on a lot of deals, but it's not something that's on every deal. Some operators do a pref and others don't. Some people call them a coupon, which is the legal term for a limited partnership. But anyway, what it means is it's not a promise or a guarantee, and it doesn't mean that you get paid that much every year. It just means that the first available positive cash flow off the property after you pay for your mortgage and debt and overhead and operating expenses goes to the investors to that threshold. So say you have a 7% preferred return, the investors are getting paid 7% annualized before the operator is sharing in the profits. Okay, so some deals could be structured where you're getting 5% year one and 8% year two, let's say, with a seven pref. So that can be kind of confusing because you didn't get the 7% in the first year, you only got five. So it's owed to you in the case of how we structure our deals at Ashcroft. So if you were only paid five on a seven prep, we owe you 2% more and we'll catch that up when we can through operations or refinance or a sale in the worst case scenario. And so, so preferred return never changes throughout the lifespan of the deal. If it's a seven pref on the deal, it's always a seven pref on the deal. And it just means you get the first 7% of profits before the general partner sharing it. Cash on cash is something that changes year by year based on performance and refinances and just things that can happen on the property. That's how you could get 5% year one, 8% year two, 9% year three, 10% year four. That's cash on cash. If you put 100K in and you got 5,000 in distributions, 5% cash on cash for that particular year. The IRR is actually a pretty complex calculation that's that's usually done just through a computer, but it takes into consideration the time value of how long you're in the deal. So you can get a much higher IRR if you're only in a deal for 18 months and it sells at a profit than if you were in the same deal for five years and got the same right. amount of dollars over five years. You're gonna have a much lower IRR. And the simple way, that that may not be you know the most correct way to to articulate this but the simple way i look at it is let's say i'm in a deal for 5 years i go back and look at dollar for dollar how many dollars did i collect in cash flow distributions over that 5 year period plus how much did i get in equity gains when we sold the property and then you exclude your return of capital. Whatever I put in the deal, 100K comes back to me. That gets pushed to the side. So when I add up that equity and that cash flow together, it gives me an aggregate number. Let's say it's you know 100,000. And I say, okay, I made $100,000 from cash flow and equity in five years. If I divide by five, that was 20,000 per year or a 20% IRR. That's just the simple way that I think about it again may not be the most you know awesome. correct way, but um, you can look up online how that calculation is actually done. Awesome. So I want to, for the sake of time, I want to hop to our radio round uh, real quick. I just got three questions for you. The first one is, what is your favorite book? My favorite book. Oh my god, of all time, that's a tough one, man. Um, right now I'm reading a book called The Lifestyle Investor, and it has a lot of parallels, excuse me, to what I preach and teach to people. God, you would ask me that. 
I am dropping the name. I just started this book two days ago on Audible, so I don't know, but it's called The Lifestyle Investor. So um, some investor pointed it out to me, said, I'm sure you're familiar with so-and-so who wrote this book. And I said, actually, I'm not. I've never heard of the book. So um, it's it's about basically investing for passive income to enhance your lifestyle. So in other words, it's not about money. It's about time freedom is kind of the basis of it. So that's what I'm reading right now. I'm not done with it, so I can't say it's my favorite book, but it's uh, I'm enjoying it so far. <laughs> awesome. I'll have to check it out. Uh, if nothing else, you convinced me to to listen to you. Um, what is your favorite? What's your favorite quote? Oh, God, there's so many. So one I like by uh, Marcus Aurelius. So this is a quote that's like over 2000 years old, right? Roman emperor he says, everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. And everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. And the reason I like that is because you, you listen to people like me on a podcast saying what I say, believing what I believe. And then you go listen to this other podcast and you hear the exact opposite, why you should be a new development, why cash flow is not important, why net worth is the primary focus. And you just have to remember, these are we're just sharing our opinions and our perspectives. To me, there is no right and wrong when it comes to investing. You have to do you. And that's why I tell people, start with your goals. If your goal is just to have a certain net worth number, and then you're going to go invest in like a stock index fund and use the 4% rule, then cool. But a lot of what I'm saying isn't going to resonate and you're probably going to disagree. And that's okay. <laughs> so. well, one one thing that I've noticed is that like, like I have changed over the years. My belief system in investing and investing yeah. thesis and journey, it's just evolved. It's just changed. When I started investing and buying rental properties, I was never going to flip a house in my life, you know? And, yeah. and since then, I've flipped tons and tons of houses. But like, yeah. just what, what happened was my my I evolved, right? My education, my experience, my net worth, my liquidity. In in 2018, when I had like a twenty thousand dollar net worth, I, I was afraid to flip houses because if I would have got kicked in the teeth back then, it would have buried me, right? Whereas yeah. Fast forward five years where I've got millions of dollars in equity, you know, throughout all these properties and I get kicked in the teeth like I did last year, I can easily absorb it because I've got all this like backstop, you know, to save yeah. me. I'm like, oh, I'll just sell a few rentals and cover my my gap there, you know? Um, and so, so, so my whole perspective has changed and on a lot of different subjects, about a lot of different things about like, where I would own rental properties, you know, when I'm cash flow centric, when I'm equity centric, it just changes and evolves because everybody's at a different place in their journey. 100%. Just like the story with my mentor, who knows, and, you know, 30, 40 years, maybe I'll be in insured muni bonds and talking to right. people about that. I guarantee yeah, you, he, he didn't make $100 million off of a municipal bond. No, right? he didn't. No, he didn't. <laughs> nope. Awesome. Travis, where can our listeners find out more about you, get in touch with you, learn from you, invest with you? 
Sure. So Facebook and Instagram, you can find me at Passive Investor Tips, which is the name of the podcast I host on the best ever real estate investing advice. If you want to jump on my calendar for a free 15 minutes, one-on-one Q&A, deeper dive, you can go to ashcroftcapital.com forward slash Travis and get access to my calendar there. Never an upsell, never a bias to it, just whatever you want to talk about. I'm happy to add value if I can. Awesome. Travis, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciated the the update and the perspective. And uh, I look forward to, to keeping up with you on your journey and catching you at the next conference. Thank you, Sterling. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. This episode was brought to you by Crestworth Capital. If you're a busy professional and ready to make passive income from real estate investing, then go to CrestworthCapital.com where you'll be able to download a free copy of our ebook to help you get started today. Until next week, happy investing.